Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Armstrong, in for Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. The 2023 fire season in Canada has been unprecedented. It was a violent event. Um, the world shattered. High-risk weather is becoming more common and severe across Canada. We have to adapt to this new reality. We're just really getting hit hard. Vicious cycles. How this summer's wildfires set the stage for future disasters. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Making rent. Ridiculous, unreal rents. How Airbnb helps fuel sky-high housing prices. The shark is broke. I didn't conceive that it would be quite so popular. A new play about the making of jobs. And WWE or bust. It's all about like larger-than-life characters, really. The Canadians making a bid for wrestling stardom. All today on Day 6, the Radio Ring General Edition. week leading up to the evacuation, I just drove back into town. It was really scary coming into the Northwest Territories. As soon as you crossed the border from Alberta, it was just full of smoke and you could see plumes of smoke and the sky was, it had that reddish hue to it that you, you know, you can see that there was flames and it was pretty disturbing. Justin Nelson is the general manager of the Yellowknife Co-op. His three kids evacuated Yellowknife last week, along with most of the city. It just became more and more more surreal. And, um, of course, we had a lot of residents from Yellowknife here shopping, getting on last-minute things. And, of course, our gas bar was, you know, we had vehicles lined up uh, out to the road, which is probably about 20 to 40 vehicles deep. So everybody wanted to get gas. It was very panicky. Everyone just wanted to get out of town. So, and that includes a lot of our staff as well. Tens of thousands of evacuees are still waiting to get home as wildfires continue to burn in the Northwest Territories and British Columbia. But because the co-op was designated an essential service, Justin is among the few Yellowknife residents who never left. It's weird. It really is. Um... Uh, you, you kind of feel like you're in a bit of a dream, especially when you're driving into work and, uh, you know, all the streetlights are, are just flashing and you can just sort of, you know, you don't have to really wait for anything. So it's eerie. Uh, you know, it's very quiet. So, I mean, to live in a city where there's no people is is uh, a little bit frightening, actually. You never think you're going to have to evacuate your home, let alone your city. And, you know, unfortunately, um, this is happening year after year with these forest fires. And it's, it's uh, nothing I would want to wish upon anybody. It's, it's just a horrible thing. This wildfire season has been unprecedented. And Armel Castellan says the effects of the fires and devastation will continue to create new environmental hazards long after the smoke and flames have cleared. 
Armel Castellan is the Warning Preparedness Meteorologist for BC and the Yukon with Environment and Climate Change Canada. He's in Victoria, BC. Armel, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So weather forecasting is your trade, but did you anticipate just the intensity of this year's wildfire season in Canada? Oh my goodness, no. I mean, of course, we saw the the signal in September, October of 2022, and we thought, wow, this is very dry, this is very hot. Uh, but, you know, the environment reacted so dramatically with the fires uh, in northern Alberta, northern BC, and then eventually uh, spreading right across the country into Nova Scotia, Quebec, all simultaneously. I, I think a lot of us think of these fires and these incidents as like isolated events. But is this what people like you have been warning us about these so-called cascading hazards? Yes, we do see very clear links between what has occurred and the next season and how those connections are made. And so we know that there's a multi-year effect that we like to describe as cascading hazards. So if we look ahead to the fall and winter, what new hazards might we see emerging in, in British Columbia and the North as a result of this year's fires? Well, we're going to see an, a very strong transition, of course. We'll be going into the cooler seasons. We'll be going into some higher rainfall for some locations. Judging from previous years, anytime you have such a strong drought impact and in also the burn scars uh, from these tremendously large fires, landslides are the big thing that we're even worried about currently with the recent rainfall in BC and parts of Alberta. Eventually that will make its way up to NWT and other parts of the country that have been affected by these big wildfires. The hydrology as well. I mean, there's less forest to absorb that rainfall and evaporate and moderate the snowpack. So, you know, when you denude the entire watershed or a big part of a watershed, you have to expect effects on the flooding, the infrastructure damage potential, and then the other parts, which is like fish habitat and, of course, water quality on the other end of those hydrological events. And then, like, cast that out over years from now the 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 risk just feels like it it is it is growing by the year and building off every previous disaster the, the, this doesn't feel like it's coming under control anytime soon yeah that's correct and oftentimes i hear the the phrase a new normal uh, from from various media and i think it's a dangerous concept to put forward because we are dealing with something that isn't uh, just a step function this is not you know, what we've seen in 2017, what we're seeing in 2023, this is not kind of the average uh, new normal. In fact, we're on a trajectory that isn't stopping anytime soon. You know, maybe a decade or two from now, we'll be looking back at these early 2020s and thinking to ourselves like, oh, remember when it was just, you know, three weeks of smoke and 10% of the, the, you know, the provincial landmass that was under fire, it could be quite a bit more than that. Obviously, we don't know exactly any of those details yet, but we're certainly on that trajectory and those goalposts are moving fairly dramatically. I mean, you, you've described yourself, if I've got this right, as, as residing at the pointy end of the stick where climate change projection meets that real-time forecasting. What you're talking about here, I, I wonder what, what is that like for you emotionally to, to reside at that pointy end of the stick? Yeah, you've, you've said it right. Um, it is an emotional topic because, you know, 
we're looking at things from a professional lens and we're seeing it manifest right across so many parts of society. You know, the, the ripple effect is um, both measured in, you know, uh, morbidity, asthmatics going to the hospital. It's measured in, um, you know, how many people are exposed to uh, temperatures that they've never seen before. And, and we've, we've had some reckonings there, you know, as a society we did in 2021, it was kind of the equivalent to what Europe saw in 2003, when they had their first extreme heat wave uh, lasting many, many days and weeks. Um, we really do see a changed landscape. Uh, and I've actually got kids who are going to inherit this more than I'll have you know, ever seen in their lifetime. And so, yeah, it gets emotional very quickly. I mean, it, it, it's so hard. I, I have young kids trying to explain that this didn't happen when I was a kid to them is, 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 is really jarring as a, as a grown up, as an adult to try to explain where we're at. Yeah. The, the trying to put uh, context to the conversation with your own progeny, I think is a, is a very tricky one. Um, not trying to shy away or hide from the realities because they they already know um, what is going on around them. I mean, you cannot avoid it at this point. I, I have three kids. They're they're all under ten, and um, you know we like to take them to the mountain to go skiing, for instance. And sometimes I wonder, you know, am I exposing them to what might end up being a more of an extinct sport uh, coming up in, in a few short decades and uh, having those conversations around um, what we're seeing, you know, it's unavoidable even at their ages to, to, to understand that there are wildfires. They can smell it, taste it. Um, they see it on our vacations, you know, through the Rockies just a couple of weeks ago. Um, they've seen the effects of a big wildfire in the Waterton National Park where there's literally just 10 trees that have any needles left on them. So it's a dramatic landscape that they are having to process and process at uh, a really young age. And I think the, the, the difficulty is to show that, you know, this is an anthropogenic event um, that we've created over, you know, obviously a couple hundred years almost, uh, but it is also something that we have the capacity to emerge from and we have the skills and the technology to turn this around. And I think that's where the hopeful message is, but it is a hard one to convey with a huge amount of confidence because it's uh, it's obviously beyond just myself as a dad and, and even this country, you know, we are in this as a globe and that is a very daunting concept to to really share. Well, listen, tough questions for us all after this, this difficult summer. Thank you so much for, for helping to answer a lot of them for us. My pleasure, Peter. Thank you. Armel Castellan is the Warning Preparedness Meteorologist for BC and the Yukon with Environment and Climate Change Canada. Here's some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. I've heard loud and clear from parents that are concerned... When kids under 16 go back to school in Saskatchewan, they'll need their parents' consent if they want to be called by a name or pronoun that's different from the one on their birth certificate. Saskatchewan is the second province to introduce this policy. New Brunswick introduced similar changes earlier this summer. Proponents of the policy say parents should not be in the dark about what's going on with their kids at school. 
LGBTQ, and human rights organizations say the policy risks outing transgender kids and putting their safety at risk if they're not accepted in their homes. A protest against the new policy is planned for this weekend in Saskatoon. And it's been called the world's biggest festival flop. So are you ready for Fire Festival 2? You heard that right. The Fire Festival, the epic concert disaster from 2017, is back. And the first batch of early tickets has already sold out. To refresh your memory of round one, concert goers paid thousands of dollars for what was supposed to be an ultra luxury island festival experience. They went expecting Haley Bieber, Kendall Jenner, a stay in a villa, and celebrity chef meals. But there wasn't a Bieber or Jenner to be found, or proper bathrooms for that matter. Instead, attendees were met with FEMA tents, flimsy sandwiches, and absolute chaos. Organizer Billy McFarland served four years in federal prison on fraud charges. Still to come on day six, The Shark is Broken, a new play about the making of Jaws and why the actors wished for a bigger boat too. I'm Peter Armstrong, in for Brent Bambury. I felt pressure in the writing of it. I just found out my rent's going to be increased from $2,100 a month to $2,400 a month. No, but like, in what world is it okay to be paying $2,600 a month for a studio? I feel like I can't stay here, but I can't move anywhere else because anywhere else I move to, the landlords are just going to charge me like $2,500 a month in rent. If you're an apartment hunter or a tenant right now, you don't need me to tell you it's tough out there. In July, the average rent in Canada hit a record high at nearly $2,100 a month. That's more than 20% higher than two years ago. Vacancy rates are low, and not just in major cities, but also smaller ones, which saw an influx of renters looking for more space during the pandemic. And on top of all that, there are unseen forces that wannabe tenants have to contend with. We actually offered six months in advance, $24,000. And despite offering that, we got rejected. We found out the competing bid Mm -hmm. was a person who offered to lease all five, six units. And they're turning it into Airbnb rentals. Short-term rentals can pull in as much money in a few days as long-term tenants would pay in a month. And that has many landlords converting apartments to short-term stays. Ricochet Media is an independent Canadian journalism outlet. And this summer, they've been running a cross-country investigation into the impact of Airbnbs and other short-term rentals on Canada's housing market. Ethan Cox is a senior editor with Ricochet Media. Ethan, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Peter. Thank you for having me. What prompted Ricochet's investigation into Airbnb's effect on the rental market in the first place? Sure. Well, I think a lot of people have found Airbnb to be an annoyance uh, in recent years. It started to cause a lot of hassles in residential neighborhoods. But where it really took on sort of a new character for us was in the wake of of this deadly fire in old Montreal in, in March that killed seven people, six of whom were tourists staying in Airbnbs. And so I think for for me, for Zachary Kamal, who's the the main journalist that's been working on this story for Ricochet, that was just indicative of of how serious this problem had become and how important it was to to try and get some answers. 
I, I kind of feel like we almost need a like a glossary because it's such a new phenomenon that we need to come up with new terms to explain what we're talking about. And one of those terms are these networks you guys call ghost hotels. What are they and how widespread are they? When Airbnb started, uh, the intention, or at least the marketing, was, hey, you can rent out a room in your house on some busy weekends in the summer and make some extra cash. But in reality, what Airbnb now is, is a platform for unregulated hotels, uh, people that have networks of dozens, uh, even up to hundreds of units in, in buildings across the city that are, that are operated like a hotel. So we call those ghost hotels. Those are buildings that, that might appear to be residential apartment buildings on the outside, but for all intents and purposes, they're being operated as hotels uh, outside of the, the scope of law and regulation. And there are laws and there are regulations, but they do have these kind of gaping holes in them that allow these operators to to, to work around them. Uh, one of those workarounds, another new term is called the Montreal Shuffle. Can you just explain how that works? Let's say, for, for example, we have a landlord who has a building with six units. So the offer is get rid of your long-term tenants, however you have to. There are legal and illegal ways of doing that, but get rid of your long-term tenants. Sign over the leases on all six of your units to, to, to an Airbnb entrepreneur for rents that are four times what they used to be when they were being rented out to long-term tenants. Ridiculous, uh, unreal rents. Um, but the Airbnb entrepreneur is happy to pay that because it's a cost of doing business for a hotel business that's bringing them in huge amounts of money. And the landlord is benefiting not only because their monthly revenue has gone up by four times, but also because the value of their building has gone up. Because when, when people look at the value of buildings, either to, to buy and sell them or, or to finance them with the bank, that's determined in large part on what rents the tenants are paying. So when you go to the bank and you say, I have six tenants that are all paying four times market rent, the bank says, wow, that's a very valuable property indeed. And just to be clear, you call it the Montreal Shuffle, but it's not unique to Montreal, is it? No, no, it's not. We called it the Montreal Shuffle because we identified it in practice in a couple of the right. biggest networks here. But we are we are seeing these type of things across the country. I mean, the most important thing to know about what's happening with Airbnb is it's not small potatoes. There are millions and millions of dollars invested in this. And, and as when you try to regulate any industry, uh, the people who have money invested are going to fight that regulation tooth and nail. Uh, some of the biggest players in real estate in Canada are doing this, and it's having a, a seriously negative impact on uh, on the availability of, of housing for, for people that need it in long term. And, and I will admit, previous to your reporting, I had thought this was something that was largely happening just in the big cities, in the Torontos, the Vancouver's, the, the Montreal's. But this has gone to, like you guys reported on Les Îles de la Madeleine, like the, these tiny little islands, tourist hotspot uh, up north of, of PEI. What's happening there? There's an almost unbelievable situation that happens in the Magdalen Islands every summer where landlords will kick out their tenants for the summer so that they can make more money renting their property to tourists. And so you have uh, rental tenants, uh, even whole families that are forced to live out of tents uh, over the summer because they're, they're only in able tents. to sign. Yeah, they're only able to sign a nine month lease. So if you go to the Magdalen Islands and, and you're somebody that lives there and you, you go and you look at an apartment in, say, September, the landlord might tell you, great, you can sign a lease today, but that lease goes to April 1st, and then you have to leave. And whether you can come back at the end of the summer, who knows? Um, so it's just an incredibly untenable, precarious housing situation that's that's being created by by the demand of tourists and also by by people who are not from the Magdalen Islands going there and buying up property. 
You know, the issue around housing that is affordable, whether it's rental or real estate, is kind of top of mind everywhere we look right now. Can can we quantify the impact that all of this is having on the ability of people to find and afford apartments to, to live in long term? I don't have uh, the definitive answers for you, but what I can tell you is that prior to the fire this spring in Montreal, there were at least 15,000 units listed on Airbnb in Montreal. And uh, on July 1st this year, uh, the traditional moving day in Montreal, there were over 400 people, 400 families who did not have a place to move into, moved out of one place and had nowhere to go. So, you know, what is the impact? Is is the housing crisis entirely attributable to Airbnb? No, of course not. But Airbnb is exacerbating the problem. It's not like these short-term rentals are without their champions, right? We, we've seen them in municipal and provincial governments. We've seen them in the, the, the form of the entrepreneurs actually out there trying to sell them. And part of their argument is that having these short-term rentals actually expands the rental market and it can benefit low-income landlords what do you make of that? It's hard to um, marry that with the facts on the ground. To the extent that anyone can marshal positive arguments for Airbnb, those are invariably based on a type of use where it is genuine homeowners sharing a room in their principal residence once in a while. There are no, I've, I've never encountered a positive argument for having unregulated ghost hotels. I mean, if you go back in history and you think about, about our history, hotels used to burn down all the time. And we've made tremendous advances in fire safety in these type of mass residential buildings. And going away from all of that, saying, okay, we're going to replace hotels with unlicensed ghost hotels that don't have to follow any of the rules, don't have to follow any of the regulations, and we're just going to cross our fingers and hope that, that people don't die as a result is, is a terrible policy. What can be done to try to rein in the worst of what you're describing here? The good news I see is that I think in the near future, there is going to be enough pressure on governments to have them regulate short-term rentals. The problem I see in the longer term is... What does this do to our housing market? Because what we're already seeing is we're seeing that when these landlords are pushed out of short-term rentals, they don't return their, their units to the regular long-term market. They try to rent them out through Airbnb for months at a time. And I think if you're Airbnb, you know that, that the, your time is up when it comes to short-term rentals. This isn't going to be tolerated forever. So I think where Airbnb would like to go is towards mediating every rental transaction so that everybody that rents an apartment is paying a percentage to Airbnb. And that would be terrible. Like even you're, you're talking about even if I'm renting a place for like a year long lease, you envision a scenario where that might be managed by Airbnb in the way these short term rentals are now. Precisely. What we're seeing right now is Airbnb moving from purely short-term rentals to more monthly rentals. And that's in large part to get around regulations targeting short-term rentals. And so I fear that, that yes, what we're going to start seeing is more and more landlords requiring people to, instead of signing leases, to, to make an agreement through Airbnb. And we had a terrible precedent in Toronto, the landlord and tenant board there, that ruled that, that long-term tenants who were paying their rent through Airbnb did not have the same protections as tenants who had signed a lease. 
So this is the real fear that Airbnb inserts it itself in not just these hotel type of transactions, but every month, every Canadian that pays rent, that's what Airbnb wants. And if we're not careful, they're going to worm their way in there. And those points, they're going to come out of our pocket. Well, listen, we, we appreciate your reporting on this issue and really just grateful that you made the time to speak with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on, Peter. I hope you have a lovely weekend. Ethan Cox is a senior editor with Ricochet Media. We asked Airbnb to comment on this story. In a statement, the company says it supports fair, reasonable regulations. It also says it does not have any ambitions for the long-term rental market and is simply following customer demand. tension on the boat on screen and there was tension on the boat off screen that's that infamous scene from jaws when quint smashes the radio and his boat to bits after chief brody tries to call for help there are three main actors in the film i mean apart from the shark there's robert shaw who played quint roy scheider who played brody and an up-and-coming richard dreyfus who played hooper and they did not get along on screen or off Shaw was the veteran, a Shakespearean actor with a drinking problem. Dreyfus had an ego, and Scheider was the mediator. Jaws was released in 1975, and it was the first film shot on the open sea. The weather didn't cooperate, the mechanical shark kept breaking down, and the actors were confined to the small space of the boat for a movie that filmed a hundred days longer than planned. Things were not always, well, chummy. And now, the making of Jaws is the subject of a play co-written by the late Robert Shaw's son, Ian. It's called The Shark is Broken. What about you, Robert? What do you think it's about? It's about a shark. What's it really about? It's really about a shark. Don't read me more into it. It's a thriller, a machine for making money. Do you really think they're going to be talking about this in 40 years? And here we are, 48 years later, still talking about Jaws. The play, The Shark is Broken, first hit the stage at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2019. And they didn't need a bigger boat, they needed a bigger theatre. It sold out. It moved on to London, then Toronto last fall, and this month it opened on Broadway. Ian Shaw is the play's co-writer. He also plays his father on stage. Ian Shaw, welcome to Day 6. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You know, this play started on a bit of a whim. When it opened in Edinburgh, you you weren't sure anybody was going to show up. And now here you are performing it on Broadway, your first Broadway show. How is this moment feeling for you? Well, I'm still pinching myself. It's it's very hard to process. You know, I'm currently in the theater that uh, the John Golden here that my mother did look back in anger in 1957, which is something that I never thought I would say. Wow. So, yes, I mean, I did think that the play had a popular 
element to it. Uh, I, but I just thought we would be touring around village halls, you know, um, because I thought that, you know, obviously Jaws fans, of which there are a sizable number, would be interested in the behind-the-scenes story. But I didn't conceive that it would be quite so popular. Now, to the conception question, you, you, if I've got this right, you got the idea to write this play after reading what you've called your father's drinking journals. What on earth is a drinking journal? Well, yes, that was one of the elements. It's a literally an account of what you didn't drink or did drink that day. So, you know, it would be, you know, June the 10th, no alcohol. You know, and then it might be July 15th, you know, two bottles of wine. So what, what is it, though, about those journals and about sort of that glimpse into the details of the days and of the weeks of, of this shoot that made you think, yeah, you know what? I think there's, there, there could be a play in this. Well, I mean, the drinking diary, I think, was leading up to Jaws. Um, and, and what I found moving about that was just the you could see the attempt. You could see that he was in the grip of something that he was trying to shake himself free from. And, of course, he didn't manage to. And, and with the shark being broken during the filming of Jaws, there were so many delays that it was just an invitation to, to open a bottle of vodka, you know. Right. I mean, there were a lot of alcoholics in the acting profession from Robert's era. And I sometimes wonder whether they were trying to compensate for the lack of masculinity that there is associated with being an actor by being a hard-drinking, tough guy. Right. I do find that fascinating, and, and I also find it fascinating how the world has evolved since then. Yeah, I mean, the, the behavior on sets is, is an entirely different affair now than it would have been back then. I, I wonder how much of a glimpse this has given you into a better understanding, maybe, of your dad. I mean, he, he died, you were quite young, right? He was 51 years old, so that would have been put you... When I was eight, yeah. Eight, yeah. So, you know, you, you don't get that chance to know him as an adult. Did it make it difficult to portray him on stage? Well, I don't know. I mean, I do feel that I did uh, know him quite well obviously from a from the perspective of a boy and the great thing about that is that you're not in conflict it's before you start to break free of your father so i didn't go through the teen uh, years that some of my siblings did with him so um we were simpatico and then of course you know in my research and talking to the family and reading everything that he wrote and all the interviews that he did and watching his performances on film and watching his performances on the, the Dick Cavett show. And you, you do feel that you've got a fairly comprehensive picture of somebody. Um, and of course, I share a, a much of his outlook anyway. So I feel that um, I've never known a character better. Uh, does that increase the pressure that you feel when trying to portray him in the play? I felt pressure in the writing of it, you know, um, the tone of it, because I did, you know, it's a very delicate balance. You don't want to put him on a pedestal, but also I don't want to throw him under the bus at all because I adore him. So that's, that was the most nerve wracking. And that was the thing that gave me the most sleepless nights. But I feel when I play him, 
because he's so fearless, I feel quite uninhibited. It, it feels quite, I don't know, it feels quite freeing. Uh, you know, you, you talked about this moment that, you know, you're at the theater where your mother performed, you're, you've taken this show from an idea to a, a performance to now Broadway. Have you given yourself, have you allowed yourself that moment to let it sink in and celebrate the moment that you're in? Because it really is quite, quite something spectacular. Well, thank you. Uh, not quite yet. I mean, we've been working quite hard on it and we've got, a, you know, two wonderful new actors, Alex Brightman and Colin Donnell. So, you know, they've been contributing to it as well, you know, in, in performance. And so we've had subtle alterations. So I'm still slightly in work mode, but I think in the next few weeks, I, I'm sure I will um, be able to try to appreciate it. But I mean, I, you know, I do feel very lucky. That's that's for sure. You know, you know, one of the things that we were really drawn to uh, when we first started hearing about this is that on the one hand, the play is about this kind of tense dynamic between the actors. But so many of the reviews have described it as hilarious and funny and that it's it's almost joyful which isn't, frankly, what I expected. Did you expect to write a play that was so funny when you set out to sort of patch this thing together? That, that was the intention, you know, to, to make it a comedy. I mean, I personally think Jaws is very funny. Oh, it is. And so we were taking inspiration from the film, and it also veers quite swiftly to a different change of tone, and it's quite hard to know what's coming next. So... I felt that that was appropriate in writing a show about Jaws. And I also just personally feel that if you can get people laughing, then they're more likely to open their hearts to being moved. So it's a sort of trick you play right. in a way to sort of tickle people so that you can get in there. You know, I rewatched Jaws last night, knowing that I was going to be talking to you about this today. And, and you're right, the veering of emotions from horrifyingly scary to almost zany to the, the songs they sing is almost head spinning. Did your father have a, a good sense of humor? Cause it, you, you'd almost have to, to take the movie where it went in all those directions. He, he had a fantastic sense of humor and uh, you know, that's the thing as a child, he was very uh, playful and funny and naughty. And so he sort of gave me a, feeling that it was okay to challenge authority he kind of invited challenge and i think that's one of the greatest things he gave me well I, as i say i do hope you get the moment to let this all sink in and i i personally can't wait to see it i hope i can get down to new york uh and get a viewing of it the very best of luck and and thank you so much for for giving us the time today my pleasure. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Ian Shaw plays his father, Robert Shaw, in The Shark is Broken, which is on Broadway until November. Still to come on day six, the Martha Mitchell effect uncovers the untold story of one of the few women of Watergate. It was a harrowing event that she went through. Grab your VIP pass. 
We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We are in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Peter Armstrong, in for Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts, and at cbc.ca slash day6. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the greatest creative mind of our generation. This is an artist. This is the epicenter of that canvas. This is Rajan Husher. Rajan Hasher is not his real name. This is Manjot Guman. He's a wrestler from Mississauga, Ontario, with aspirations to go pro. Huge adrenaline rush. Like, I play a bad guy for the most part. And like it's so strange having people boo you, but it's like the best feeling in the world when they're booing loud. It's weird, I know. It's weird. Despite his large athletic build, his tortured artist character, and even a WWE cameo, he's yet to be signed by a wrestling promotion. It's not easy. Like, if it was easy, like, a lot more people would be doing it. There are hundreds of Canadian wrestling hopefuls like Manjot all over the country, doing everything they can to land that one contract to catapult them into stardom. But compared to their fellow wrestlers south of the border, Canadians are at a disadvantage. The WWE just wrapped up their second and last Canadian tour of the year with a stop in Quebec City on Monday. The U.S.-based promotion puts on more than 100 televised shows annually, but only seven of those took place in Canada this year. Of course, Canadian wrestling fans would like that number to be much higher, and that's just one of many things they wish were different. We spoke with Manjot and his coach, Ulysses Minor, about why it's harder to make a career out of wrestling in Canada. There's a lot of great, great independent wrestlers in Ontario alone. People that helped train me, like Gabriel Fuerza, he's awesome. Von Vertigo's awesome. Shane Sabre's awesome. Alexia Nicole, Mark Wheeler, Jesse V. Like, all those guys are, guys and girls are great, but like, there's like not that many eyes on them because like they're in Canada. Canadian wrestling essentially doesn't get anywhere near the amount of, um, like, really any sort of traction, like social media, word of mouth, any of that. And that essentially puts Canadian wrestlers into a bit of a bubble in comparison to the American wrestlers who get a lot of uh, social media clout and basically have access to a lot of exposure that we don't. We can't go over the border to wrestle down there. It's just something that's very, very difficult. I guess uh, American law, they basically, um, if you're making money, that becomes a problem. Even if you're being just compensated for gas, compensated for your time, whatever. Even even American wrestlers, like, they're, they're always shocked. They're like, oh, why don't you come down more often? And I explain to them, and they're like, what the hell? Like, how is that even a, an issue? It's very hard to get across the border because border guides, like, don't really understand what wrestling is. And, like, they ask you, like, a million questions. They might turn you away. I know definitely musicians have trouble, comedians have trouble, and wrestlers definitely have trouble. For Canadians, it's, it's it's just, for me, it's motivating because you have to work that like, that much harder. I just came back from a trip from uh, Florida not too long ago. And, like, that was very motivating to see, like, all these, like, 
American wrestlers who were like very good. And then it just like, it motivated me and the people I was with to like work even harder because we're in Canada, so we have like less eyes on us. So like work even harder than those guys. Like friendly competition, obviously, obviously. It is hard, but I feel like it's just, it's just, you gotta work harder than some people. If you're feeling a bit disheartened listening to this, don't be. There's so much more to pro wrestling than fame or money. Just ask new wrestler Lauren Wilson. I didn't start wrestling until just before my 40th birthday. And uh, I was only like recently diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic. So uh, a lot of it for me was sort of just trying to figure out what I can actually do with my body at this point when I don't understand it at all anymore. Lauren recently started training at Battle Arts Academy in Mississauga with Manjot and Ulysses. And she says, despite the tough exterior of many wrestlers, they're a pretty welcoming bunch. It's been so supportive. Like, I got to sit out and have a juice box, you know, a bunch of bunch of my classmates will see how I'm doing. The coaches are always checking on me. If I nail the most basic of like front rolls kind of thing people will give me a high five you know so it, i don't know it just keeps me coming back lauren wilson ulysses minor and manjot guman are wrestlers in mississauga ontario have Watergate behind us, I hope, because in a way it's been good. We're teaching the politicians to be straight and not crooked. That's Martha Mitchell with a statement that I think it's fair to say is still a work in progress. Never heard of Martha Mitchell? Well, in the 70s, she had a massive impact on the course of political history. I'm convinced if it hadn't been for Martha, there'd have been no Watergate. Martha Mitchell was married to John Mitchell, who was Richard Nixon's attorney general and one of Nixon's closest advisors. They were old friends and law partners. Martha Mitchell was flamboyant. She was a celebrity. She spoke her mind. She spoke to the press. And when she thought politicians were behaving badly, she called them out. But when she called on Richard Nixon to resign after the Watergate break-in, Nixon wasn't having it. His administration tried to discredit Martha Mitchell. They suggested she had mental health problems, that she liked to drink. They tried to make it seem like she had no idea what she was talking about. And then she was proven right. Now, the seldom told story of Martha Mitchell is the subject of a short documentary which was nominated for an Oscar. The Martha Mitchell Effect is directed by Deborah McClutchy and Anne Alverge. They spoke with Day 6 host Brent Bambury in March. Here is part of their conversation. Deborah and good morning. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And Martha Mitchell died in 1976. What made you want to tell her story now? Well, um, you know, neither Deborah or I knew who Martha Mitchell was. We certainly didn't learn about her in our history classes, nor did we remember her from All the President's Men. She wasn't there except in the book. 
not in the movie. Um, and so we heard about her actually on a podcast and thought, wow, how is it that we didn't know about this woman who was seemingly extremely popular at the time, mm. very telegenic, charismatic, hilarious, all the things, but yet um, was hidden in history. And we decided to dig a little deeper and really sort of go beyond what the podcast did and realize that there was a larger story here to tell. There was a larger story of gaslighting, that she had literally been a victim of a, of a scheme to silence her. It is remarkable that she's removed from so much of the historical record because in the time, she is a celebrity. She, in, in the 1960s, as we see in the film, the center of power is white and male. And the wives of these men sat and had coffee in one room off to the side while the men talked business and politics in another room. That wasn't Martha Mitchell's style, Deborah. Tell me how you describe her and how she fit into that time. Sure. Martha was a vivacious Southern belle that colored outside the lines. She wasn't mm -hmm. interested in being a typical cabinet wife and just doing the typical, you know, day-to-day -day duties of a wife. She wanted to play more of a role. And as Anne has often said, Martha wanted to play with the boys. So she was an outlier in that sense. And, you know, she was a celebrity at the time. And you can't really think of a cabinet wife today who is a celebrity in the way right. that Martha Mitchell was. You know, Martha Mitchell was as popular as Jackie O at one point. There was a Gallup poll. So she really was a unique character in that sense. Vivacious, charismatic, complicated. Um, so she was a really amazing character for us to investigate. Before Watergate and before her role in, in Watergate uh, becomes apparent, how and did the White House and the men who worked there feel about Martha Mitchell and, and the fact that she was so outspoken and noticed by the press? Well, at first, I believe the Nixon administration was sort of amazed by her and, um, you know, kind of thought of her as like an amusing mouthpiece, right? To sort of highlight their policies, they would leak stuff to her because they knew she was popular. No one else in the administration or the Nixon orbit would talk to the press. They were all very buttoned mm -hmm. up so they could get policies across via her. Mm -hmm. She was a vehicle. But then as she started to, you know, as Deborah said, color outside the lines and started speaking out of turn, they became a little bit more fearful of her and they realized that they couldn't control her. And I think that's when the fear factor came in and they really felt the need to contain her because that's what you did with women, it seems, at, at, at that period or what men of power thought that they could do to women. And when you say contain her, I'm sure people imagine that that doesn't involve anything physical. But in the case of Martha Mitchell, it it really truly did. She was in California right after the, the Watergate break-in. And she was actually on the phone with White House reporter Helen Thomas when something happened. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, Martha and John Mitchell, her husband, were in California for a campaign event. And John Mitchell... When he heard about Watergate, hightailed it back to Washington, D.C. to deal with the mess that was going on. And he said, Martha, you stay in California. Just relax and enjoy yourself. I'm going to go back and take care of some business. Um, Martha got wind of Watergate through a picture of James McCord that she saw and realized, oh, my gosh, this is our security guard. He you know, takes our daughter to school and there's some connection that's happening here. So yeah, she and Helen Thomas were on the phone um, and she was talking about Watergate with Helen Thomas and Steve King, who was a security guard at the time, pulled the phone cord out of the wall. 
so to silence Martha. A doctor came in to control her because Martha was quote unquote hysterical as people have described her. And um, that was another part of the silencing that had happened. Um, So it was a harrowing event that she went through and people didn't really believe that it had happened. If they did believe it, they sort of made fun of it. You see some, you know, TV journalists in the film kind of smirk when they're reporting on it, which, you know, is really awful. So what was the effect on Martha Mitchell of being pharmaceutically silenced and, and you know, violently uh, removed from, from that conversation with Helen Thomas? What, how did it change her? So Martha describes her life as sort of before California and after California. And I really think that was the Rubicon for her. Things completely shifted. Mm-hmm. She wanted her husband out of office. She wanted to go back to New York City and be out of D.C., away from the dirty tricks. And so it really was a clarion call for her. It was a wake up call. And ever since that point, she really railed against the administration. She spoke out against it to protect her husband because she was afraid her husband was being thrown under the bus for this, you know, growing scandal. It's amazing that after after she had been so violently silenced in California, that she became so vocal after that, that she wasn't intimidated by what happened to her in California. She she became more resolved. Martha Mitchell was apparently the first person to call for, for Nixon to resign from within the administration. How did the administration respond to her when she started questioning Nixon's leadership, Deborah? I mean, I think they just wanted to discredit her even further. Um gaslight her even further. You know, they didn't want to give any credence to to what she was saying at the time. And she was one of the first prominent people to point the finger at Nixon, which was incredibly brave. I mean, can you imagine uh, the wife of his campaign manager, the wife of the former attorney general, actually pointing the finger at her husband's boss and saying the corruption leads all the way to him? It's remarkable. But it's hard not to be sympathetic to how distressed she was. Her marriage ended. She's destitute. She's living in New York City by herself. And at the same time, being excoriated and probably uh, deeply concerned about what was happening to this administration that that she had uh, supported. And that brings us to the title of the film. What is the Martha Mitchell effect? Yeah, so the Martha Mitchell effect, it was a term coined by psychologist Brendan Mayer in 1988. And it's basically, it refers to someone who's diagnosed as delusional or, you know, paranoid or making false claims um, when they're actually telling the truth. And we've come to think of the Martha Mitchell effect in that sense as just a definition of gaslighting in many ways. It's what happens when someone is gaslit. So the fact that it was named after her is pretty amazing. You know, Anne and I didn't know that there was this term that had been named after what had happened to Martha, um, which kind of makes her story all the more incredible to us. And let's talk about her effect on other women, because here she was. She's hugely influential, as Deborah just said. She helped take down a president, but then she dies alone and and under circumstances that are tragic. And although she is seen as being somebody who did tell the truth and have the actual information, her end is so sad in this film. Did other women see her as an inspiration or did they see her as a cautionary tale? Oh, that's such a good question. Um even as hard, it's hard to say. I think, um, you know, Helen Thomas has this line, which we don't have in the film, 
where after Martha died, she said, you know, I think Martha really changed things for political wives. You look at Betty Ford now. Betty Ford speaks out and is truthful and vulnerable in a way that other wives in the past weren't. So I, I do think that she did change the landscape a bit for women. But, you know, in some ways, there's not a lot that has changed in terms of the playbook of, of dismissing women. Deborah, what do you what do you hope people will take away from watching the Martha Mitchell effect? I hope people will be inspired by her bravery of speaking truth to power. You know, there's many abuses of power at the highest levels that we've all seen happening in our political climate. Um, so if anyone can be inspired to speak truth to power in, on, you know, on a grand scale or even in their own personal lives, I would hope that that would be a takeaway. Um, also, just in terms of the gaslighting, like we see this as a case study in gaslighting. And if people can see how the mechanism of gaslighting works, maybe they can work to fight against it when they see it actually happening. And that goes for, you know, if women are gaslit, if, you know, citizens of a country are gaslit, um, you know, it happens on uh, multiple levels. So we're hoping that can be some of the takeaway from our film. Deborah McClutchy and El Verge, thank you very much for being with us. And this is a really, really great film. Thank you so much, Brent, for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Deborah McClutchy and Anne El Verge are the directors of The Martha Mitchell Effect, which was nominated for an Academy Award in the short documentary category. It's available on Netflix. from the headlines. This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, though, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Clash with I Fought the Law, House of Pain with Jump Around, and The Pixies with Alex Eiffel. Mitch Sprague of Ottawa correctly guessed the headline we were looking for, man arrested after parachuting off the Eiffel Tower. Congratulations, Mitch. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. And now, here's this week's clue. Stuck in them 20-somethings, stuck in them 20-somethings, good luck on them 20-somethings. What's the story that connects those riffs? Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize, of course, a day six tote bag. You can listen to the clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day six. From the headlines. 
And that's our show for this week. Day six was produced by Lori Allen, Annie Bender, Mickey Edwards, McKenna Hadley Burke, and Yamri Tesfu Tedessa. Our intern is Chris Slade. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. I'm Peter Armstrong, in for Brent Banbury. Thanks for listening to Day Six. If you can get people laughing, then they're more likely to open their hearts to being moved. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.